what's going on guys welcome back to consuming crime with jen and jules it is jules here today we will be covering house of terror the dupont de legone murders i am not sure if i'm pronouncing that correctly this is a case on netflix another unsolved mystery episode two i believe and it's all in french so there's not gonna be any um audio playing just because you guys aren't gonna know what they're saying unless you speak french so it's just gonna be me telling the story and possibly mispronouncing a couple of names. I'm sorry in advance for that. Before we get started, make sure you give us five stars wherever you are listening. If you have not already, be sure to check us out on Patreon. We have two bonus episodes a month for you at the $5 level. The $7 level, you get the two bonus episodes plus the regular episodes with no ads. And the $12 level, you get all of that and you get to watch me tell the stories, not just listen to me tell the stories. Without further ado... Let's jump right into it. So this case takes place in Nantes, France. It's pronounced, or it's spelled N-A-N-T-E-S, but they were saying Nantes. It also sounds really cool. So this is west of France along the Atlantic coast to give you a more geographical idea of where it is. And this area is peaceful. It's fairly quiet, which is very common for most cold cases or unsolved mysteries. Nothing really goes on in this area. Especially not something like this. This area was also full of upper middle class people, and this is where the Dupont de Legone family resided. Their house actually got deemed the house of terror after what happened happened. It was at 55 Schumann Avenue. Before we get into the details of what exactly happened with the family, let's talk about the family. It's a family of six. The woman or the wife's name was Agnes. She worked at a Catholic school, and the husband was Count Xavier. Count is like, I think they mentioned it's like an an aristocratic title, so obviously this is very successful man family. He is a successful businessman, and their son Arthur, who is 20, and he is the oldest, he's going to college at the moment. Thomas, who's 18, he's very shy, and he's very into musicology. Musicology? Why did I... Why does that not sound like a word? Anyway, and Anne, who's their daughter, I think their only daughter, who's 16, and she is so beautiful that she models for mail-order catalogs. They kind of brushed over this. I don't know if she's a mail-order bride or if she just models for it. They don't They don't bring this up again, though. It's just a, a random curiosity question I had. And Benoit, B-E-N-O-I-T. I think French, that's Benoit. He is 13 and he really likes the drums. Overall, they have four kids. And as a matter of fact, Arthur, who is the oldest, is not Xavier's son. I think we get into that a little bit later, though. It is April 11th, 2011, on a Monday. The neighbor noticed that their house was closed up. The shutters were always open, even when they went on vacation. So the fact that on Monday morning, door was locked, shutters were closed... A little weird. I didn't think it was weird. I'm a very private neighbor. I don't like my neighbors to know my business, so everything's always closed. But they were so close with their neighbors that the one that noticed used to iron Xavier's clothes. So they're very, very tight-knit. Definitely a different neighborhood than what I'm used to. Tuesday comes along. Everything's still closed. Everything's still shut. Wednesday comes along. Everything is still closed. Everything is still locked and shut. Neighbor decides to call the police. Now it's April 13th, same year, 2011. Police go for a house call. Knock on the door, front door is locked. 
They call a locksmith, the locksmith comes, lets them in. Everything looks totally normal. Everything is in its place. Nothing is knocked over. Nothing is, nothing crazy. Nothing to indicate any type of foul play. Some of the closets were open, but that doesn't really say that there's foul play. That kind of just tells them that maybe they just left. So the police concluded that that's what happened. They just left voluntarily. And at this point in the story, I don't see reason why they wouldn't just leave. You know, I don't notice anything suspicious. But then again, if there was nothing suspicious, it wouldn't be an episode on Unsolved Mysteries. Let's continue. Some of the cars were still there, except for the C5. What's notable about the C5 is it's a smaller car, so there's no way, and this is what the neighbor had put together, there's no way that Xavier, Agnes, the four kids, and the two dogs that they had, and their luggages would have been able to fit in the C5, the smallest car, think of like a Honda Civic, fitting all those people, all those luggages, and leaving. So the police kind of look at her like, ah, you're crazy. They probably got like a U-Haul or something. They brush it off. They always do. But this time I'm like, eh, maybe I would brush it off too if I was an officer. I don't know. Again, there's no blood. There's nothing. I wouldn't think anything of it. On April 14th, their house receives letters. This is when it gets really, really weird. In the letters, they link, it, it's like a letter from Xavier and Agnes to that house. The letter indicated that Xavier was recruited by the United States to be, or to infiltrate the international drug ring for the DEA, saying he was a spy, you're not going to be seeing my family for a while now, we're in witness protection, I'm a spy for the DEA, please don't tell anybody. If you're a spy for the DEA, how do you get away with writing an entire letter and sending it to your old address? I don't know, it, it, was a little, it was a little weird. And again, it was allegedly from Xavier and Agnes. Now we have Bruno de Stabenrath. This is Xavier's friend and he's being interviewed. He starts kind of giving us a background of how he met Xavier and how Xavier met his wife. They met in the mid-1970s, Bruno and Xavier, in Versailles. I think that's how you say it. And they met at 16 years old. They were best friends. They were neighbors. They were both part of aristocratic families. And Xavier's family in particular was very important. And in aristocratic tradition, legacy is very, very important. And I want you guys to take mental note of that. Because that does play a part later in the story. He met Agnes when he was 20 years old and she was either 16 or 17. Agnes was very conservative, she was beautiful. It, at some point that kind of like, Xavier got, I don't want to say he got bored, but he wanted to travel, he wanted to have a good time. So he ended up breaking up with her for a little bit and he went to go travel. When he came back, she was pregnant. Not by him though, by another man. They never mention who this man is, she's just pregnant by another man. This is where I mentioned earlier that the oldest son, Arthur, is not blood his child. Regardless of that, he must have, you know, obviously he loved her enough because he stuck around. He decided, I'm going to father this child and I want to marry you. So he married her and he gave Arthur his last name, which is very important, again, because legacy, you know. Then came the other babies, all the three other kids. And so everyone's question now is, how do you go from that 
lifestyle of building a family and being successful, supposedly, to now you're a spy in the DEA? Have you been a spy this whole time? Like, was being in France just like a mission? Are you even French? Like, there's all these questions now. On April 15th, police go back to the house. They look again. They look everywhere, and they're really, really looking this time because now they have a letter, like a big WTF letter. Like, what is this? And they find nothing. On April 18th, they go back to the house again, do another sweep. There's nothing. April 19th, again, do another sweep. There's nothing. The 20th, sweep, nothing. The 21st, sweep. And this time, this being their sixth visit, they notice something under the terrace in the back. I'm probably not gonna, I'm gonna be too lazy to edit in dun dun dun, so I'm just gonna do that. Anyway, at the same time this is happening, the district attorney, Xavier Ronson, is handling a press conference, or he's holding a press conference in the investigation. He actually has to stop the press conference on camera to answer the phone. And he says, okay guys, we need to delay this meeting. There's been a break in the case. They find, after digging, plastic bags with tape around them. And you guys, there's bodies. Multiple bodies. They also find small religious items near them, as if the killer killed them and then wanted to bury them in a respectful way, religiously. Kind of weird. I mean, this was a Catholic family, so it was kind of like they had a Catholic burial. So who's, who's being buried? Who is it? It was Agnes, Arthur, Benoit, Anna, and the two dogs in one grave. And in a separate grave was Thomas, which would be not their oldest son, but Xavier's oldest son. Because remember, Arthur's not his blood son. But you know who's not buried in the ground? Xavier. So who is their prime suspect now? Really quick, you guys, I interrupt this program to introduce you to today's sponsor. It is Consuming Crime's very first sponsor, and that is Audible.com, which is an Amazon-owned company. They are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, you get one free credit, and with our code, Consuming Crime, you can get one month free and one free audiobook. I actually use Audible myself. I don't really have time to sit down and read a book. I'm constantly moving around and, you know, doing school, work, the podcast, things like that. Right now, I am currently reading a book written by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I love a lot of his works, and the one I'm reading right now is called The Mastery of Self. I am obsessed with self-development, self-growth, and this book really teaches you about knowing who you are, knowing, you know, what you have to offer the world, and just knowing that, you know, no one's better than anyone ever, and I think it's really good to just be self-aware. With that being said, again, go on and head over to audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime and get your free audiobook on us completely. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. Now, back to the story. An international warrant goes out for his arrest. I'm not gonna lie to you guys, right when I hit this part of the documentary, I was like, no, no, like, there's no way. I mean, 
of course, I don't know Xavier myself. I don't know the situation, but I'm just like, four kids, your wife, and two dogs? How do you, how do you do that? So right now, I don't think it's him. But who else could it be? Maybe I'm the only one that's naive. Let me know what you guys think at this point in the episode. A lot of people in the area, too, were trying to say that... It, there's no way it could be Xavier because of the fact that he had a really bad back and there's no way that he could dig the holes and lift the bodies and do all this. But, like, like even if he did do it, what if he had help? You know? We, again, you just never know. They had found sleeping pills in the four children in the autopsy report. And Agnes did not have any drugs in her system, but she did use a sleep apnea machine to sleep. And this machine they did find was turned off at some point during that night that the rest of the children were killed. She was the very first victim. Everyone else was shot with two bullets to the head with a .22 long rifle. I don't know how to read guns, but you get it. Yet somehow, so that would be a total of, what, eight gunshots? Ten gunshots? And the neighbors didn't wake up? Like, whoever did this, they planned it. <sighs> they were all killed in their sleep. And when they went to go look in the beds in the house, and they went and sprayed all that, you know, that's, I forgot what that stuff's called, but it tests to see if there's traces of blood. There was nothing. There was no trace of blood anywhere, nothing. There were no fingerprints, no DNA on the bodies or in the home, nothing that linked to Xavier, except for the fact that he's the only one not dead in the family. Or, I guess, not found. I don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he's dead yet, guys. Xavier was 50 years old. He had no trouble with the law. And now, all of a sudden, he's this mastermind? Is he still a spy in the DEA? Like, is this something the United States had him do? I don't know. That's a conspiracy. That's a total conspiracy. Don't listen to me, guys. He, like, did he kill his whole lineage? He's an aristocrat. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? So let's get into the why, okay? They go to his history. So let's let's rewind. In the early 2000s, the family tried relocating to Florida. They had this big American dream, and unfortunately, they did not succeed. However, from this trip to Florida, that's when the family's money started going away and dwindling. From the year 2001 to 2010, they were losing money. He was supposed to be, you know, he's this like successful guy, he's rich, but actually a lot of his businesses were failing. And if he kept going on this path right now in 2011, or at that point in 2011, he would eventually lose his house for sure. So the theory is that if he killed his family, he killed it to save his children from disgrace. I think murdering your lineage is more disgraceful than being broke, but I'm not an aristocrat, so I don't know. On January 20th, 2011, three months before the murders, Xavier's father, Hubert, dies of a heart attack. When Xavier went through his apartment, this is on the neighbor's account, so the neighbor accounted and said, yeah, Xavier came, he went through Hubert's things, looking for personal belongings, looking for money. And he especially wanted to find a ring, the Count's ring, a Count Signet ring. It must have been worth a lot of money. Another thing that would be 
part of a lineage, but he he seemed to just want to have money, so maybe he wanted to sell it. He found nothing. And the reason he found nothing is because not just him, but his father, his father's life ended in poverty. And it, it begs the question, did this feeling that he had towards his father disgust him and resonate with him so much he didn't want to leave his kids in the same way? It's a question, for sure. Xavier, and this is, you guys, this is when I started to realize this something fishy is going on. Xavier finds a .22 caliber rifle in his father's apartment. On February 2nd, he gets a firearms license. And before this, he was not a gun guy. He wasn't the guy to go buy guns, go to a shooting range, and shoot them. That wasn't him. At least not that anybody knew of. He learns how to shoot. He even takes his two sons to the firing range. On March 12th, you guys check this out. On March 12th, he buys a silencer. So obviously, two plus two. Alright guys, let's get into that night. Or that weekend, I should say. Everyone was at home that Saturday and Sunday. But Thomas, the firstborn son, needed to go back to the university. Everyone gets killed that night that Thomas is away. On Tuesday, Xavier calls him and says, Your mother's in a coma. She was in a bicycle accident. You need to come home. So Tuesday night, Thomas is home. And Thomas sends a text message to a friend at midnight. And his friend texts him back and he never gets a response. So between that text message to his friend responding, the sleeping pill must have kicked in. I wonder if he waited longer to kill Thomas because, you know, like I had mentioned before, Arthur was their oldest son, but Arthur wasn't his blood. So in from an heir, from a lineage standpoint, Thomas would have been the son for that. So it just makes you wonder, like, maybe he waited longer because of that. Doesn't make it right, it just provides a little bit of reasoning. Now we are back to after the bodies are found. April 22nd, this is the day after. They find Xavier's car in this, like, hotel area, and they start putting together what happened after the murders. Xavier had spent almost the entire week in the home with the dead bodies. This must have been when he was packing everything up, and when he was putting every all the bodies away, hiding them, whether he got help or not, I don't know. The neighbors did not account seeing anybody go in and out of the house. After this, he was seen in street cameras, in restaurants, withdrawing money from the ATMs, like in the little cameras. And he was basically on the run, but he what was weird is he wasn't running. Like he didn't seem like he was in a rush. I don't know why the cops didn't find him in this time, but again, Things take time, you can't always have immediate access to camera footage, so try to be a little understanding in that point. The police are assuming because he doesn't seem to be in a rush that he's going to commit suicide. He goes along the coast of France, he visits where he met Agnes, he visits where his kids were born, and he his last known stop was Roquebrune-sur-Argens. Uh, it's a hotel. It, or it's a city, and he spent the night in a Formula One hotel. This is where they found the car. They check the images from the camera from the hotel, and they see him carrying a bag, including a long bag, which they're gonna, it's safe to assume, this is where the rifle is, because they couldn't find it before. He looks into the camera, 
as if he's saying goodbye. And then he walks into a wooded area across the hotel where there's mountains, grass, trees, and a cliff. It is now April 22nd, and the police check this area for a potential body. They are looking everywhere, you guys. They have firemen, helicopters, they check the cave, they check every hole, every cranny. They're really looking, and you guys, they, they never find him. They never find him. There's theories that his friends have that he possibly went to Latin America or somewhere where they speak Spanish because Xavier spoke French, he spoke Spanish, and he spoke English, and he spoke them all very well. So the one place he would survive where he does, he does have a little bit of a Spanish look, if you guys are able to see a picture, he would blend in well. So the theory is that he is alive somewhere. I guess if the theories are correct, then he killed his family because he didn't want them to go broke. If he killed his family, he is someone that would have rather his whole family dead than his whole family alive and broke. This was a definitely a wild one. I don't know what I don't know what happened. I mean, I I would think that if he killed himself, they would have found the body. I do. I don't know how far out they checked. Maybe he just walked right past the area that they checked in. But no, I mean, you guys, I'm, I'd have to agree. I think it's possible that he's alive somewhere and maybe he took a boat somewhere and just, I don't know. I don't know, guys. I mean, I'm curious, though. I'm curious to see what you guys think and um, definitely let me know if you guys think he's dead or if he if he's possibly still on the run. And then, yeah, check out the episode, too. Maybe I missed something that you guys won't miss <laughs> and let me know what you think. Um, but yeah. Besides that, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to the episode. Make sure you give us five stars wherever you're listening, and if you have not already, check out the Patreon. Five dollars gets you two extra episodes per month, seven dollars gets you those two episodes plus our regular content ad-free, and the twelve dollars gets you all of that plus you get to watch me tell the story, not just listen to me tell the story. Other than that, guys, thank you for consuming crime with me today, and you will hear me next week.